Well, if you'll take your copy of the Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3, we'll be focusing on verses in Philippians 3 today. This is on page 981 and 982, if you're using one of the Bibles in your seat there. And uh, today we are nearing the end of our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, Pastor John will be preaching and uh, concluding uh, our summer series in Philippians. The following week, so two weeks from today, on August 21st, uh, is going to be a big day in the life of the church. That'll be the the Sunday where we're celebrating uh, the 20-year pastoral anniversary of our lead pastor, Bert Daniel. And uh, our guest preacher that day will be Mark Dever, uh, who's pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's been a longtime mentor to Pastor Bert, so we're excited uh, that he'll be with us uh, two Sundays from now on the 21st. And um, plan to be here that weekend. Uh, next Sunday, uh, be here as we uh, finish our series in Philippians, and then two, uh, two weekends from now as we celebrate Pastor Bert and God's grace and faithfulness in his 20 years of ministry. And uh, I'll just say as well, um, don't forget, if you haven't already, we have an opportunity for you to fill out just a, a simple note card uh, sharing a word of encouragement or thanks or appreciation with Pastor Bert. Uh, there's a table in the back of the room uh, near the coffee And uh, if you haven't uh, taken advantage of that yet, next Sunday will be the last Sunday uh, to return one of those cards. So grab a a card after the service, write just a a brief word of encouragement to Pastor Bert, and uh, drop it in the basket uh, in the back of the room. All right, today we'll be looking at the last half of Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 7 and uh, read through the end of the chapter. And we're going to spend most of our time today uh, looking at verses 12 to 17 in particular. So follow along as I read for us Philippians 3, verse 7, and I'll actually read through chapter 4, verse 1. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, July 4th uh, weekend, our nation celebrated its 246th birthday. I did the math. 246 years. Uh, traces back to the signing of Thomas De- uh, Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And uh, that document opens with the famous proposition that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what Jefferson meant by that last phrase, the pursuit of happiness, has been a matter of discussion ever since. It begs the question, what what is happiness? Is it possible for us to ever be truly happy, or is it merely something that we endlessly pursue? And how do we pursue it? As Americans, of course, we're Uh, thankful that we enjoy such political freedoms as we do, and that freedom to pursue happiness has been a foundation upon which so many of our other political freedoms uh, have rested, and so we can be thankful for it. But is pursuing happiness, is that all there is? In our passage in Philippians, Paul shows us that, that we as Christians ought to be using our lives to pursue something much greater than whatever temporal happiness our political freedoms might grant to us. Christians, whether we're American or not, we have been offered something much greater than earthly happiness. We have been called to joy in Christ. And joy is a a bit different from happiness. It's, It's deeper. It's sturdier. We've seen in Philippians that joy is is not an emotion, but it's an attitude that is commanded and expected for those of us who are trusting in Christ. The joy that Paul exudes throughout the book of Philippians is rooted in the person of Christ. And today, Paul teaches us that we ought to pursue joy. We ought to actively chase down and try to obtain joy by pursuing none other than Jesus himself. We can begin by looking right in the middle of that section uh, we read a moment ago at verse 15 where Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. The idea of mindset is uh, a big deal in Philippians. It's come up before uh, back in chapter 2. You remember there Paul says, uh, we are to have this mind uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about Christ a mindset of humility and how that's an example for us to imitate. And now here Paul says that Christians who are mature should learn to think in a particular way. Our, our mindset, our ideas, our way of thinking about the world around us and about others, these things are a very important part of the Christian's life. So ask yourself the question, what is Paul referring to here when he says that I ought to think this way? What is the example here that he wants me to imitate? Well, we'll see today that if I'm thinking like Paul, it means at least three things. It means, first of all, that Jesus is my goal. Secondly, it means I understand the truth about myself. 
And third, it means that I focus on one thing. Jesus is my goal. I understand the truth about myself, and I focus on one thing. He explains these things to us so that we can think the same way and make these things our own. So first of all, Jesus is my goal. Now, to see what Paul's goal is, we have to glance back at some of the verses we considered last week. So back in verse 8, Paul talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he says he wants to gain Christ. In verse 9, he says he wants to be found in Christ and have the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. In verse 10, he says he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. In fact, in verses 7 through 11, in those those five verses, Paul mentions Christ either by name or by reference ten times. So Paul's desire, his goal, the thing that he is pressing on towards is nothing less than Jesus himself. And all this culminates at the the end of verse 11 in the, the ultimate need we all have to attain the resurrection from the dead. And down in verse 14, Paul beautifully characterizes the goal he has in view. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You'll note that Paul here does not make simple statements like, I just can't wait to be with Jesus, or I just want to spend time with Jesus, or I want to do things uh, just like Jesus would do them. Granted, all of those things are undoubtedly true of Paul, but he's using language here that's uh, it's a bit more passionate. It's a bit more all-encompassing. You can imagine the, the deep passion that might stir in the heart of a husband who says to his wife, I want to know you. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I want to gain Jesus. I want to be found in Him and partake of His righteousness. I want to share in His suffering so that I can be like Him in His death and therefore share in His very resurrection. Pastor Jesse last week did a great job unpacking what Paul means here when he says that he wants to know Christ. And this is what Paul is after. This is his goal, is Christ Himself. So Paul invites us to think this way and have the same goal in mind. Second thing we see, if if I'm going to think like Paul, it means that I understand the truth about myself. Specifically, it means I understand that Christ has me and that I don't yet have Christ. Look at Paul's assessment of his own status. Uh, Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So Paul, in in pretty lofty language here, describes his goal of knowing Christ and being united with Christ. And then he evaluates himself. He says, okay, so I know what my goal is. Let's do like a progress report. Let's, Let's check in and see how I'm doing. And he says, very frankly, I'm not there yet. I don't have what I ultimately want. Paul says that he is not perfect in verse 12. And if we're not careful, we can read just that verse, and without its context, we can think, okay, well, Paul's final goal is to be a perfect human being. He surely knows he can't be perfect in this life, but he's just going to do the best he can, and if he messes up, he's just going to get back up and keep going. He's going to try really hard. It's great. 
pat yourself on the back, do your best. When you mess up, it's okay, just keep going. But remember, we know from the preceding verses, Paul's goal is not just perfection in the abstract. Paul's goal is oneness with Christ. His goal is to know Christ. His desire is not for generic moral improvement. Rather, his desire is to fully and finally know Jesus so that he can stand with Jesus in the resurrection. Of course, that does result in perfection on the final day, but the goal here is not merely perfection without the context of Christ. It might seem like a a fine line or a, a fine distinction to make, but I think it's one we need to make. If we find ourselves struggling against sin and our only frame of reference is, ah, I need to be a better person. I need to stop doing this thing. That's perhaps a statement that is technically true, but is stripped of any, any kind of gospel power. Instead, we need to find ourselves, when we're, we're battling the works of the flesh, we're battling against sin, we ought to instead think, this is evidence that I need Jesus. I need to know Jesus more. I need to be found in Him. I need to share in His sufferings, in His death, so that I die to sin once and for all, and I can one day stand with Him in the resurrection. Now, that's a statement. That's a way of thinking that is also true, but that is infused with gospel power. Where do you especially meet Jesus? Where do you come to know Jesus? Well, we especially come to know Jesus in the pages of Scripture. So you sink yourself in the Bible day after day, pleading with the Lord to use His Word to make you to know Jesus more fully. This, this way of thinking, it's kind of a, a holy dissatisfaction on Paul's part. I think this is what Paul's modeling here. He's not content with where he is. I've not yet obtained this. I'm not perfect. I haven't made it my own. And yet, this doesn't cause him discouragement. You could imagine him saying, ah, I'm so discouraged, man. Like, I'm just, I, I'm not there. Like, I want to be, but I'm just not. I just, I don't know what to do. It doesn't cause Paul to lose hope or to give up or to feel sorry for himself. Because this isn't all that there is to Paul's progress report, to his understanding of his own situation. There's, there's more here. What else do you see in verse 12? He says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Has, past tense. It's already happened. He has made me his own. Paul wants to know Christ. In its fullness, that will mean perfection. And on the one hand, he can say, ah, I don't have it. I'm not there yet. And on the other hand, he can say at the same time, Christ has already made me his own. And both things are true. Christians, we are already saved. This is the doctrine of justification. We have been declared righteous before God. And at the same time, we are being saved. This is the doctrine of sanctification. This is an ongoing process, an ongoing work that's happening even today. Both of these things are realities for the Christian. So Paul, Paul gives us really important insight here into the nature of our salvation, kind of the, the nuts and bolts of how our salvation works. We learn in this verse that the reason we work out our salvation, the reason we press on and seek it out is because Christ has already saved us. 
The ESV says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The CSB says, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. One commentator writes that Paul wants to take hold of the very thing for which Christ first took hold of him. Paul's point is always that Christ's work is the prior one. His point is that Christ's work is the prior one and that all his own effort is simply in response to and for the sake of that prior work that Christ has already accomplished. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saved us, therefore we do good works. It is not the other way around. We do not do good works in order that God will save us. No, that's not, that's not how God has designed it. It's the other way. God saved us, therefore we do good works. Our striving for Christ is based on the fact that we already belong to Jesus. It's the reason we strive for Christ. It's the means by which we strive for Christ. It's the means by which we are empowered to chase after Christ. It's the goal towards which we press. When you understand these truths about yourself, when when you understand uh, the truth that you have not yet attained the perfection of knowing Christ, that realization should humble you. In your most confident moments, when you're especially certain that you're a maturing Christian and God is using you to teach and instruct and to lead others and to correct others and to set an example for others, and, and maybe He is. I mean, the Lord was doing that here with Paul. That Paul was really a mature Christian in many regards, and the Lord was using him for the good of others. But especially in your most confident moments in your walk with the Lord, understanding the truth that you have not yet attained to knowing Christ, that should really humble you. So when you're pretty sure that you're right and the other Christian is wrong, just check yourself for a moment. You've not yet attained to the full knowledge of Christ. It's very possible that you're the one who's missing it. On the other hand, understanding the the truth about yourself, that Christ Jesus has already made you His own, this provides us with an unshakable bedrock for those times when you're, you're crushed by the weight of your own sin, when you can't possibly imagine that you'll ever look anything at all like Jesus. That's when Jesus says over in John chapter 10, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. This, too, should humble you and silence you, and it should give you rest in the hands of your Savior. Paul invites us to think this way. This brings us to the third point. If, if I am thinking like Paul, then it means that I focus on one thing. If I'm thinking like Paul, I focus on one thing. The last part of verse 12 there. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it by own, my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
But those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I don't yet have the goal I'm striving for, so I I focus on one thing, and that is pressing on. And here's how I do it. I forget what's behind me, and I strain forward. I vigorously pursue what's ahead of me. Paul forgets what's behind him. Now, there could be many things in our past experience that can hold us back from moving forward. Maybe it's some sort of suffering or loss that we've experienced in the past. Maybe, maybe you've been wronged in some way and sinned against. Maybe you've been so hurt that it feels like a weight that's just tying you down and you don't know how to move forward. Maybe it's despair over your own past sins. You can't believe what you did that one time. Or you can't believe how you used to live all the time. Seems there's no way you can ever be free of your own sin. It could even be that you're so fixated on God's past grace to you that you've settled in to be content dwelling on what God has already done for you in the past. Now, you've gotten kind of out of balance in this regard, that, um, that's the, as if that's the only grace you will ever experience from the Lord, or as if that's the greatest grace you will ever experience from the Lord, and maybe that's distracting you from moving forward. One commentator writes, says, Paul's forgetting what lies behind is a special kind of forgetfulness, the kind that does not turn back and glance back with the goal to indulge in the complacency of past achievements. He goes on to say, those who are mature refuse themselves even a satisfied glance back at spiritual attainments. Instead, forgetting what is behind, they pour their energies into the full pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. You know, praise God that we can often look back and see how incredibly far the Lord has brought us, especially if you think in terms of uh, years and maybe decades of walking with the Lord. You really can look back and see uh, how God has matured you and grown you in your walk with Him. And we should do that from time to time. But as soon as you do that, turn back around and look at Christ, and you'll realize how much further you still have to go. And you'll be very sobered, as Paul is here, to realize that you have not yet attained what you're after. That's when you take a deep breath, you put your head down, and you press on towards the final goal. In our English Bibles, Paul twice uses the phrase, press on, in verse 12 and in verse 14. The original word in Paul's Greek language is the word dioko. And that word dioko is used three times in Philippians. It's used verse 12 and verse 14, where it's translated press on. And it's used back in chapter 3, verse 6. That's where Paul was recounting his uh, achievements, quote-unquote, before he had trusted in Christ, before his conversion. He recalls how he used to be a persecutor of the church. Persecutor is the same word in the Greek, dioko. So Paul, to his great shame, recalls how he used to dioko the church. He used to zealously pursue the church with hostile intent. He would hunt down Christians to put them in jail or to kill them. And now, a few verses later, after Jesus has taken hold of Paul, Paul can say with great joy, now 
he's using all of that passion and that same energy to dioko Christ, to zealously pursue Christ, to take hold of him and to know him completely. This is what Paul means when he says that he presses on. He's now pursuing Christ with the same zeal that once animated his deadly pursuit of Christians. And Paul wants us to think this same way. He wants us to harness all of our energy, all of our passion, all of our zeal, and he wants us to let it energize uh, all the effort we can muster to pursue Christ. This is the opposite of the idea of sitting contentedly in one spot. God saved me, going to heaven, it's all good. Paul says, no, get up, get to work, and chase this thing down because you haven't yet taken hold of it. Now, someone will object, but wait, that that sounds like work. We're saved by grace through faith, and this is the gift of God, not a result of works. Okay, yes, that's true. And the same man who wrote those words over in Ephesians also wrote in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So now Paul's expounding on what it looks like to work out your salvation. And at least in part, it means putting forth every ounce of effort you can muster and consciously, zealously chasing after Christ. Pursuing Christ is hard work. Saying no to our sinful desires takes work. Loving our unpleasant coworker takes work. Growing in the knowledge of Scripture takes work. Choosing joy in the midst of suffering, it takes work. Paul's not describing a, a gentle downhill coast to the finish line. He's describing strenuous effort, everything we've got, all for the sake of knowing Christ more fully. In verse 16 then, Paul issues the simple call, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Hold true to what we have attained. That kind of sounds like work too. We need to put forth a little effort, hold true to something. I think I've, I've mentioned before, I enjoy whenever I get a chance to go on a backpacking trip. And when you're, you're backpacking on a trail, if you're on a trip of a few nights, uh, you're carrying on your back 30 or 40 pounds, and maybe you're, you're going uphill trying to get to the, the summit of the mountain. And when you find yourself in that situation, as you're going up the mountain, you don't go back. Every step you gain is hard-earned, and you don't go back, not even a little bit. You don't walk back down a little ways to look at that thing you passed a while ago just out of curiosity. No, there's no going back. The stakes are too high. It takes too much effort. You attain it, you keep it, and then you keep moving forward. What did we say earlier in our confession of faith? We believe that only those who endure to the end are the true people of God, having their persevering attachment to Christ as the mark which distinguishes them from those who make superficial professions. God's providence watches over their welfare, and they are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. You know, lots of people profess faith in Christ. And sadly, it's a smaller number, maybe a much smaller number, who will persevere to the end. One writer says, 
The future belongs only to those who persevere. This is why Paul must press on, precisely because he has not yet arrived at the goal in verses 10 and 11. He is pursuing it with all his might. So let's not slow down. Let's not coast towards the finish line. Instead, let's seek to die running, as it were, everything we've got until we cross the finish line. One of the keys to understanding this whole section is the the contrast between having a, a mind that is set on here and now versus having a mind that is set on eternity. We're not able to spend much time on verses 18 to 21, but I do just want to point this out. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So this is the the first group. This reminds us of the the Judaizers back in the first part of chapter 3. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, and here's here's the second group. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. When you travel outside of the United States, you you always carry in your pocket your passport. And your passport serves as a constant reminder and as evidence that although you're visiting in one country, all the while you are actually a citizen of another country. So when you visit Italy, you don't cease to be an American citizen. If anything, you're even more conscious of the fact that you're an American because you don't quite fit in while you're in Italy. As much as you may want to, as much as you try to not act like an American, you can't help it. You're an American. Paul says that that we, Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even while we continue in this life. So we should think like citizens of heaven. We should act like citizens of heaven. We must not go through life with our minds set on earthly things. What do citizens of heaven do? They use every last ounce of energy to try to chase down their king, to be with their king, and to know their king. In just a moment, we're going to continue worshiping as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we believe that the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to us for our instruction and for our encouragement in the faith. So let's use this time, uh, even as we take into our bodies the bread and the juice, to consider what it means to deeply know Christ and to cherish Christ and to press on towards Him. Let's pray together. Father, it is an amazing thing that you have made us your own, that you have us and that you keep us. And your word gives us the command, gives us the charge to chase down Christ, to make him our own. Would you make us a church full of Christians who are not content until the day we stand with Christ. And grant that we would always be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Him. We ask these things in our Savior Jesus' name. Amen.